0: Hey everyone, and a massive welcome to the first in our second series here on Infosec Live of the CISO experience. And after the success of our first series, with 16 episodes being viewed thousands of times and a truly engaged and interactive audience, I'm super excited to welcome our first guest on the show today. But before we begin, a little bit of housekeeping. For those that don't know me and haven't tuned in before, my name is Simon Linstead. I'm the host and founder of the Infosec Live community. If you haven't, please, please like and subscribe. We do try and make these events as interactive as possible. So make sure you do drop any questions in the chat you might have throughout the show as well. And for those who don't know a bit about the InfoSec Live community, We're an independent social network community of 3,000 cyber professionals, all sharing best ideas and practice in what I believe is the world's first dedicated security social network. And we've been creating content on YouTube now for just under a year and super excited to announce that we have just qualified for the YouTube Partner Programme with over 2,000 subscribers and 5,000 hours viewed of our content. So a massive thank you to everyone in our amazing community for supporting us. And you should, get my breath back. See the ability to purchase super stickers in the YouTube chat now, which will help us grow this awesome channel a little bit more. And as you all know, our aim is to keep bringing you valuable and informative content. And this new series is here to help by continuing the theme in our community of sharing those best ideas and practice. And this show is only possible thanks to the support of our show sponsor, Brandfit Technology Lab. So before we bring our first guest on, a little bit about Brandfit. They're an international cybersecurity consultancy that leads the way in innovation and cyber resilience with their entire team being owner-managed and working on a linear structure, drawing expertise from the military, government, finance, and technology industries. Together, they provide support and collaboration to those who protect company assets and sensitive data. They lead in technical cybersecurity consultancy, focused on embedding a culture of security with their clients. And through research, education, and execution, Bramfit helps to protect your systems and your reputation. And a recent quote by the CEO, Lewis Bramfit, if you're a CISO suffering from Big Four fatigue, Reach out to Brandfit today to see how they can help. I will put their web link up in the ticker throughout the show, so if you want to check them out, that would be amazing. But let's get on with this show. Our first guest is Christian Espinosa. Christian is the best-selling author of The Smartest Person in the Room, an entrepreneur and founder of Alpine Security, a white hat hacker, certified high-performance coach, and importantly, a lover of heavy metal music and spicy food. He's also an Air Force veteran and Ironman triathlete and used to value being the smartest person in the room until he realized that his greatest contribution to humanity, leadership, and the fight against cybercrime is his ability to bring awareness and simple solutions to challenges associated with high IQ and low EQ staff. Very excited to be digging deep into the importance of emotional intelligence with one of the world's, I believe, top experts on the matter. So let's bring him on. Christian, massive welcome.
1: Thanks, Simon. I'm pumped up. I like the new intro. (laughs)
0: Thanks. It's exciting. I'm just getting my breath back. I've got to learn how to pause, really, when I'm doing that intro and try and breathe in between, I think. I'm hoping for some tips today.
1: Awesome. So well you did great. Do you
0: wanna, I'm, I'm just gonna I'm gonna bring the chat up. Now we've got loads of people jumping in the chat already. It'll start to populate through. So quick shout out to Will, Aaron, Christopher, Zachary, um, and Will B and Cyberflower in the chat. Thank you very much for jumping in. Please, please do drop your questions in the chat. But before before we do that, let's jump in a little bit, Christian, and if you could give everyone a bit of background about yourself and how you've become where you are today.
1: Yeah, I'll give a quick background. I Started my career in the in the military, in the Air Force, studied communications in the Air Force. Then I became a defense contractor, uh, worked at various jobs, traveling to different military installations, optimizing their network for performance and security. And then I worked for a commercial company where I had one of my defining moments where I thought I achieved everything I wanted, like the white picket fence, the house, the, you know everything. And I had to run it with a CEO that was kind of draining my mental energy so I decided to quit because uh, I thought my sanity was more important than the money without having another job lined up. And that was the first time I'd done something like that. But that started my solopreneur or freelance career, which lasted about four years. I did cybersecurity training all over the world. I probably taught 10 to 12,000 people, CISSP, Security+, Plus, uh, malware analysis, incident response. And then I got bored with that. Uh, I was making a fair amount of money uh, and taking a lot of time off, but I thought I wasn't contributing enough. So I decided to start a company. So I started Alpine Security in 2014 and ended up selling it to Cerberus Sentinel in December of 2020. Wow. Uh, and now uh, I left Cerberus Sentinel in June. So I'm doing some real estate investing. I'm working on my second book and I'm you know doing some cybersecurity stuff and speaking engagements as well.
0: Wow so before we move on to the second book because we haven't <laughs> talked about the first one yet I mean I, I have got I should have it to hand as well I have got a copy of the first one and I must say it's an amazing read do you want to just tell this isn't a pitch I'm not on commission unless you want to give me some question this is a genuine <laughs> a, a genuine recommendation that I thoroughly enjoyed this book do you want to tell people a little bit about how you came to put this together
1: Yeah, during my journey as an entrepreneur with my cybersecurity company, Alpine Security, I had a lot of challenges. And when I I did a lot of reflection. I've I've been into personal growth and personal development for quite some time. I realized that 99% of the problems I had in my company were not due to a lack of technical skills or lack of process or framework. It was due to a lack of people skills. So I knew in my company that if I could add emotional intelligence or people skills back into the equation that already had super high, rationally smarter, high IQ people, that would help my company stand out. So that's what I did. I did a lot of training in the company, emotional intelligence training, uh, leadership training, communications training, customer interaction training. And what ended up working is what I wrote about in the book. Uh, And it's really about my journey with my cybersecurity company. And the the reality is, the steps in the book, there's seven steps that I call the secure methodology. The reality is that that methodology applies to anyone. It just so happens to be that the context from my experience has been with my cybersecurity company.
0: Okay. And... Writing a book, I mean, I, I'm I've sort of gone silent because I've considered writing a book myself, and it's a massive, massive task. Um, where did you where did you start?
1: Uh, you know, I'm working on my second book now, and my writing style is is exhausting because I <laughs> kind of put up a straw man at first and think, okay, I've got like the book sort of laid out, I've got the raw material there, but then what ends up happening is I spend massive and massive amounts of times on the revisions so and i did this with my first book and it th- it works for me but there's there might be a more efficient way to spend more time up front and less time in the revisions yeah. but like uh i probably spent an a- average of an hour per page on the first quarter of revisions for this last book uh just making sure the content is accurate it's relevant it's interesting it's dynamic and it fits in line with like the the central theme of the book so it's um it's exhausting but i knew i always wanted to write a book so i did the first book i grossly underestimated the amount of effort it would take but i, I managed to get through it
0: so it's amazing when do you think the second one's going to be ready
1: it should be ready around march or april time frame
0: and, and what is the focus of that do you mind me asking and can we talk about that now or would you rather not
1: yeah, we could talk about it. The second book, the focus is on, uh, I'm going to call the book The In Between Life Happens in the Macro. I'm uh, sorry, Life Happens in the Micro. So the second book is really focused on the in between moments and the micro moments within the in between. Because in life, I think, at least for me, it's easy to get wrapped up on the thing you're trying to achieve, the macro goal, at the expense of setting some intentionality with the micro moments and adding value. Uh, on the day-to-day small moments which really are what life is about. I think we sometimes forget that and it's really sort of a memoir of my own experience where I've got this right and where I've got it wrong and hopefully there's something to learn uh, through my sometimes awfully painful journey and sometimes you know very happy journey.
0: <laughs> I think I think it's it's the pain that teaches us a lot isn't it and it's uh, as you said, the micro and the macro, I mean, my, my brain, I've got ADHD. So my brain feels sometimes like someone's got a remote control. And that flicking the channels over is probably <laughs> the best way to describe it. So I, I find myself having to structure my day. So yeah, if, even before I go to bed at night, I write out a list for what I need to do in the morning. I don't go any further than that because what I like to do in the morning is then sit down, address the list and prioritize it and try and put it into an order of things that I need to achieve. Have any any tips for people whose brains go at 100 miles an hour to be more efficient, Christian?
1: Well, my brain goes 100 miles an hour as well. So what I do, and I talk about this in my book, I do monotasking. And the way that shows up on my day is I have a list of things to do a list of tasks a to-do list like most of us. So what I do is I set up an hour block like in my Outlook calendar I'll put for this hour I'm working on, you know, one specific thing such as my logistics for a trip to uh Europe for instance. Yeah. And that that's all I do during that block of time. I don't check email. I don't check Slack, I don't check Zoom or WhatsApp or WhatsApp or anything else, Teams, I just do that one thing with concentrated focus. And what I've realized is that reduces that stress. Like you mentioned the channel switching, yeah there's no channel switching. You're on one channel for a block of time, typically like an hour and that reduces that stress because you no longer feel like you have to respond to everybody else's demands and all the inquiries and all the information that's coming in at you. You can focus on one thing at a time and get it done. And then I just, even though I may be exhausted, I go to the next block of thing and work on that for an hour. And sometimes I may only have 30 minutes, but you'd be surprised if you focus on something for a short amount of time, how much you can actually get done. Because I'm a believer that we tend to take up as much time as we give ourselves to get something done. So if we give ourselves less time, we're we're often more likely to get it done than if we give ourselves more time.
0: Uh, Do you know, I I work so much better under pressure, Um, whether that's pressure put on by myself or from other people for deadlines and you're right it's amazing what you can get done in a short space of time that you'd normally drag out um I want to try and take the chat back to I suppose CISO focus for the for the leaders who are watching in the cybersecurity community and how you know that emotional intelligence plays such a key part in the role of leadership now could you could you expand on that a little bit and especially around the high IQ low EQ part
1: From a leadership perspective, one of the things that I I realized, not super quickly, it took me a a while, was the people I hired and the people on my team needed to have the same values I did and needed to have a cultural fit. Uh, And this, the values and cultural fit should be a priority above technical aptitude. Uh, Because I used to hire people purely based on their technical aptitude and kind of just ignore the other stuff. But as I mentioned a little bit before, almost all my problems were because of a lack of cultural fit, a lack of core value alignment, and a lack of the emotional intelligence. So I flipped the script uh, when I started hiring people. And when I interviewed them, I made sure that they aligned with our core values. Uh, So we would ask them different scenarios, questions, for them to give us a scenario so we could sort of measure if they align with the core value. Like one of our core values is ownership, for instance. So we would ask them kind of give a time when they had a problem and how they resolved it to see if they mentioned taking ownership of the problem. Uh, And only if they passed that portion of the interview, then did we go on to the technical portion of the interview. So I think it's, it's and this is like, seems like a simple concept, but it's easy in cybersecurity, I believe to say, oh, this person has these certifications, they're in a technical role, Let's go ahead and hire them for that role without looking if they're a cultural fit. And I think if we all zoomed out a little bit and reflected on the challenges we're actually having with our personnel, we would realize that, that like I said, they're not a lack of technical skills, not a lack of processes. It's a lack of the people skills and a lack of the cultural and core value alignment. I,
0: I completely agree. A couple of key um, key takeaways there. One would be around um, the, the cultural fit. Now whilst I agree that's completely hugely important you do see sometimes firms end up with a real diversity problem from recruiting people who are all the same if that if that makes sense where you see a firm that's recruited lots of people with the same skill sets same personalities same kind of visions as the existing team as the as the business gets bigger do you see that as a danger or do you see that as a good thing
1: I think diversity is a good thing. Uh, I, I think if you're hiring people for core value, alignment, and cultural fit, that doesn't necessarily mean you're excluding any specific group of, of people. Uh, you know, like One of the, the things that we had as a core value in my company was a growth mindset. We had it phrased a little bit differently, but basically a growth mindset. So regardless of, of what background someone comes from, if they have a growth mindset – and the other values are a good fit for the company yeah. and the reason that it that is i believe if you have everyone the same sort of a homogenous team then you're not going to have someone that can think outside the box and, and provide a different perspective to solve a cybersecurity problem so i, I do value that diversity uh, I, I don't think it comes at a um cost of having the cultural alignment though
0: it's just that i suppose the core values have got to be right to make that flourish haven't they in the first place
1: exactly exactly 100 yeah. mm-hmm.
0: um the, the other thing i'd pick up on there is a lot of the firms i speak to become victims of their own success with regards to how busy they are and you see a lot of firms out there needing people who are technically ready to jump into the job on day one how do you get to the point where you're not in that position as a leader? Or is that impossible?
1: <laughs> uh, that, that's a challenge uh, with with my cybersecurity company. It's like these. there's these two dials. There's like sales and there's delivery capacity. And it's always like they're never aligned hardly. So sometimes sales is super high. Delivery capacity is super low. Delivery capacity yeah. is super high. Sales are super low. So that the trick is to try to align them and figure out... Uh, through a sales process, uh, how much revenue you're going to bring in and how many new clients, uh, and kind of get that dialed in. And then you can grow your delivery team at the same point. It, I, it, and that sounds like a simple thing to do, but it's not easy. So the challenge is once we get a surge in sales, how do we fill that delivery gap? Right. And, and that's, that's where, you know, quality often suffers. And you know, it's, it's like this balancing act where you may lose clients because you're providing worse service than if you only serviced a few clients very well. Uh, So I I think it's important to, like I said, try to figure out, get your sales process dialed in. So you kind of know the percentage of growth you're doing so you can align your delivery growth with that or your delivery, delivery capacity
0: yeah that, that makes absolutely sense but like you say i suppose in the real world it's not it's not always that easy when you're getting an, an influx of new customers all the time it's not I mean, because what... you, don't
1: want to, you don't you don't want to turn the customers away necessarily no. right but you also don't thought... want to deliver crappy service exactly
0: and the thing you hear of a lot now is well my, my, this is my opinion personal opinion no no opinion of um anyone represented in the show is that P.E. and venture capitalists have pumped a lot of money into this industry the last two, three, four years. And I think that's had a bearing on some of the salaries. And this is a really unpopular opinion, but it's really hard to find decent people now because the salaries have inflated so much. And I think, I don't know, have you, have you got any thoughts on where we are with, I suppose, one, the skills gap, if it's perceived or if it's real? And two, are salaries overinflated and will they need to come down?
1: I think the skills gap is a little bit inflated. I I do believe there's a shortage. I I think a team of like five passionate people can be better than a team of 15 people that just want to make a lot of money, which ties into your second part of your uh, question. I I do think salaries are overinflated. And what it's caused is a lot of people want to get into into cybersecurity because they want to make, quote, a lot of money. They want to have all these options, but they're really not, and this is just my experience, it's not, you know, it's a generalization. A lot of people are really not that passionate about cybersecurity. So you have these people that just want to make money that are basically clocking in and clocking out. Um, And then we wonder why we're not getting the job done. And that's why I said some passionate people would go a lot further than some people that just want to clock in and make the money in cybersecurity. And, And I've witnessed this firsthand because I've taught a lot of different cybersecurity classes over my career. And a lot of people really didn't care about the material. They just wanted to pass the test and get a job and start making money. And I'm like, if you don't care about, you know, the basics of networking or what a firewall does or anything, then how are you gonna add value to, you know, the the person you're going to work for? But they they really didn't care because uh, they just wanted the job. And they realized that, you know, if this job doesn't work out, I'll job hop and go somewhere else. So we sort of promoted this behavior in the industry, which I believe has, has helped create the skills gap um, because like I said, we, we should need less people to do the jobs. Um, but we've, you know, I think we've overinflated the problem with the skills gap.
0: I, I completely agree. And my, my couple of comments on that would be one, if you're in it for the money, there's easier industries to earn money in than cybersecurity. And I think <laughs> that's, that's true. to, to, to enjoy working in this industry, you need a passion for it. You need that passion. And it isn't something that you can just switch on and off when you start work and when you finish work, it's something that you'll be passionate about all the time. And my final point before I get to some of the questions in the chat is I'm going to blame the global education system on a lot of this. And the reason I know it's a sweeping statement, but the lack of critical thinking comes from the way we educate our children. And I'm speaking from experience here in the UK having six children. I mean, I was fortunate enough to be privately educated in the UK, which was a different education experience where they fully encouraged critical thinking public speaking you know all these different things but children are now so, are taught to pass tests they're not taught to retain knowledge and i think the whole way definitely here in the uk that the, edu- the the state education system works or doesn't work is one of the problems that's contributing to that
1: yeah i agree i've you know mentioned some somewhat controversial views that you don't need a college degree to start in cybersecurity. Uh, and I think that's also a contributing factor to the skills gap. I, I used to teach college uh, cybersecurity courses, both bachelor's level and master's level. And I saw the same thing I saw in certifications. A lot of people just wanted to check the box and get the, cert- the degree so they can get a job in cybersecurity. And if I had to put a percentage on it, I would say, of the people were passionate and 80% were not. And that's through my experience teaching for a few years at a university. Uh, And that may just have been indicative of that university, but those people were also, as you mentioned, Simon, primarily only interested in passing the test or the course. I remember specifically teaching like an, an advanced penetration testing course in college and I had them do exercises with, you know, fairly simple exercises. I wouldn't even consider them advanced uh, penetration text and testing exercises. Have them use like Nmap and Kali and Kali Metas- yeah. Linux and, and Metasploit to like exploit something that had a, a basic vulnerability and, and set up a, two VMs to do that, two virtual machines. And, and people were complaining that the hard, the class was too difficult. <laughs> and, and, and I'm like, this is like basic penetration testing stuff. You're, is a master's level class, you're supposed to demonstrate mastery of the topic, um, but people were complaining that it was too yeah. difficult, and I realized they, they don't really care about the material. They just wanted to check that box, like, like you mentioned, and that attitude of just checking the box to get the job uh, does away with that, that critical thinking. It, it uh, does, and, and
0: also, you know, I'd like to think that some of the boot camps out there have got a little bit of blame to be held to them as well with regards to the marketing that goes on out there. <laughs> In that you can be a cybersecurity expert in six months when you quite you quite clearly can't, and I think managing those expectations for people trying to break into the industry. I'm, I mean, you know, my background is financial services and sales and entrepreneur, basically, but I haven't got any technical ability. I mean, I can use M- nmap, I can use Metasploit, I would have scraped my way through your your class perhaps, but I'm certainly not an expert when it comes to anything. But I have had. A lifelong passion for tech from my eighth birthday when I got a Commodore VIC-20 computer and that's what started it off so I joined the industry because I've got a genuine interest in it I'm just not technically gifted enough to be any good (laughs) which is why why I'm having these conversations on here with you instead perhaps but let's jump in the chat because you've got Loads of people jumping in. I want to say a quick hello to a few people as well. David Meese, great to see you. Thanks for jumping in. Christopher, I noticed you've got some questions. Dr. Mike Brass, fellow CISO in the house, not me being a fellow CISO, by the way. Good to see you here. Let's bring up um, one of yours first. So, questions. Probably going to cover you up on the screen, so I apologize for this. Fit Dance, there we go. There are many views on risk analyses. Do you think the FAIR method can be improved? And how do you help communicate this through with the right stakeholders? Good question, Dr. Mike.
1: I think risk and cybersecurity is is grossly misunderstood. And I I write about that in my book quite a bit. And I think some of the certification uh, study material helps add to the confusion. Uh, So I think regardless of what risk framework we're using, we, we all need to understand at a basic level what risk is, which is really the intersection of the likelihood of something happening and the impact. Mm-hmm. And from my experience with you know lots of people in cybersecurity, most people only focus on how likely it is something can happen, how likely it is you can exploit the specific system mm-hmm. uh, and they uh, ignore the impact because the impact is, is, is a challenge because it's different per system, per organization and we only have so many resources. So I think if we actually understand the impact of the clients we're serving or our own organization of different systems, then we could prioritize our resources more effectively and work on the systems that have the vulnerabilities that are higher risk because they have a greater impact in order uh, versus trying to solve you know, all the things that, that Nessus tells us are critical, for instance. Yeah. Uh, Nessus doesn't consider It's what's critical
0: to the business you're working with, isn't
1: it? Yeah, so it's, it's critical to the system as well. And like Nessus doesn't consider like, oh, this system that is running Windows XP is uh, not really connected to anything and it doesn't have any useful information on it and it's segmented from the rest of the environment. Uh, so we have to look beyond just the likelihood of something happening. Uh, we have to look at the actual impact, which relates to the specific organization. And this has to be make risk analysis uh, more tailored than it currently is, in my opinion.
0: Um, Am I, am I right in saying I mean, this again, this is my personal opinion. I think the industry has been pushed through vendors selling silver bullets and and solutions (laughs) rather than people. Would you have any comments on that without shooting yourself in the foot?
1: (laughs) Hey, I talk about there's no silver bullet all the time, but we're a product of like all this, (laughs) marketing hype from different vendors. They want to sell this firewall with artificial intelligence. They want to do all this stuff and get rid of our staff. And I remember uh, when I did work for the government, I remember at a specific air force base, uh, McAfee at the time had, I think the product was called InterShield. It was an IPS uh, intrusion prevention system. And it had some intelligence with it. And they had marketed that thing so well as that it would dynamically stop all the attacks that the, the base commander of this air force installation actually said, well, we can get rid of half of our security team because we have these products that can do all the job, the work for us. And so we had to prove as, um, penetration testers that we could get through, you know, the freaking <laughs> intershield. <laughs> so he actually still needs people like this. Is, it's amazing to me that this mindset still goes on, but, uh, yeah. You know, I, I think people are what we need to to use the technology. And we've had this the opposite as well, where we buy all this technology, but don't, buy don't the use it. But the people to use it properly. <laughs> so now we've got all this security technology on our network, which is not being maintained, which actually introduces more vulnerabilities as well.
0: And, and again, you, you tend to see when you map out where that technology sits within the organization's framework, it's all bunched up in one place as well, rather than spread out over areas it could potentially be used. Yeah. Um, while, while we're on the people, Mike has uh, come up with another question. How do you handle salespeople who think security takes time away from making money? Great question. Not just salespeople. I could even argue it could go higher up than salespeople, but I'll let you answer that.
1: Well, I think this is the challenge across the board. A lot of people believe, and it's true in most organizations, that cybersecurity impedes efficiency. Uh, The reality is cybersecurity, and I talk about this in a couple of blogs uh, of mine, is a support industry. And the whole function of cybersecurity is to reduce risk to the organization, not eliminate risk. So there has to be a balance of how can our organization perform our business objectives and add cybersecurity to it to reduce the risk to an acceptable level for the business as a whole. We get so focused in cybersecurity thinking the world is from our lens, like everybody cares as much about cybersecurity, everybody needs all this stuff, all these controls in place, that we often forget that there's actually a business going on that we're supporting. And our tools and our Policies need to be in alignment with that risk of the business, the tolerance of that business. So I I think it's important to step back and get that perspective uh, periodically and and have that perspective all the time, actually, Uh, because people think cybersecurity is an industry unto itself. It's not. Without a business, cybersecurity would not have a need to exist.
0: Absolutely, uh, we should we should say that to some of the people who've got overinflated egos out there of their own self importance that you're just a support industry. I'll leave I'll leave you to say that. Although David Meese has made a very a very scary comment that one of the vendors he saw recently said that they can protect Windows XP, which I think is good.
1: Yeah, I I, uh, I don't necessarily disagree with that. I remember a few years back, working with a medical device manufacturer, which ran, uh, their medical device ran Windows XP. And of course, it had lots of vulnerabilities. The simple solution we came up with, though, was to enable the firewall on the Windows XP device and block all incoming traffic, because there was no need for that device to have anybody to connect to it across the network. There was only the need for it to connect outbound to send specific information from the medical device uh, results, basically. So there are ways to protect things. Sometimes they're very simple. And we just have to think a little bit outside the box.
0: I think, I think, again, it's, it's relevant because a lot of the, a lot of the healthcare equipment out there, my mom's got a pace, pacemaker, for example, mm-hmm. a lot of it is run on old systems, um, as is most of our national infrastructure operations as well. I would say that's also, you know, built on pretty old systems. So it's, it's important as you rightly say, to think outside the box rather than just think about solutions you can plug in and play. Let me, um, let me get back. We've got one more question here from Christopher. Do you see a way out of the testing education state we're in? That's my fault. Thanks, Christopher. Um, how do we weed through the unmotivated sector or do we provide foundational training to all security employees? Good question.
1: That is a good question. Uh, I think one of the challenges is uh, most universities are a business. <laughs> we, like to, we don't like to think of them that way, but they're a business that markets themselves and tries to get people through their program and then tries to place those people in jobs. I, I know one of the universities in St. Louis where I used to live uh, had a super high um, rejection rate or a, a low acceptance rate in their program. But when I looked behind the door what what was actually going on, for instance, uh, and this was a marketing ploy, they would basically accept any applicant into their program, into the university, even knowing those applicants would be rejected. The reason they did that, though, is so they had a low acceptance rate, which would make them rise to the top of like U.S. news or will report for uh, yep. you know, universities. So Saying there's that. Picking... What's that?
0: Saying that they're choosy on who they have on board.
1: Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but, but they're... <laughs> They're choosy only from a a perspective that helps their marketing, right? So universities, if they have a low acceptance rate, but a high graduation rate, that helps them as well. So they're going to have more of that testing mentality. And I think the other problem with cybersecurity at universities is we don't really have any cybersecurity professor. We have a few. There's very limited cybersecurity professors that actually have real world world experience. From my experience, most cybersecurity professors, other than the adjunct ones, which typically have real world experience, but most of the full-time ones were a previous like IT instructor or a science instructor that learned cybersecurity in order to teach it. So they don't actually know a lot about the industry. So this also contributes to the testing environment because they don't know much more than here are some facts and let's test the students on the facts.
0: Do you know what? I'm showing my age now. But I remember when I was at school, when computer um, computers were first introduced to the curriculum, there certainly weren't any computer knowledge teachers out there. In fact, it was our science and our geography teacher, if I remember rightly, mm-hmm. who were handed the mantle of teaching the school these wonderful BBC micro computers, I think they were at the time. And it really was like the blind leading the blind. And I think it's a little bit like that in the cybersecurity education sector at the moment. And Paula, I'll bring your comment up only because it will go to Christian's head. But oh my God, can I have you as my teacher? I'd be glad to learn and be able to do all those things. <laughs> so, it's, again, I look back to when I was at school and I look at the subjects that I enjoyed. It wasn't necessarily the subject that I enjoyed. It was the passion and the, and the enthusiasm from the teacher.
1: Yeah, yeah, that definitely helps.
0: Christopher's got another one here. Let's bring this one up. Thanks for the questions, everyone, by the way. Do you think that establishing an accreditation council for education institutions would be beneficial for the security field?
1: I do think it would, it would be beneficial. I talk about... Uh an analogy I give in my book that to become a hairstylist in Arkansas, you have to have 1500 hours of training and you have to pass a practical exam and all this stuff before you're allowed to cut hair. But to become a cybersecurity professional today, often all you have to do is pass a multiple choice test like the security plus, which, which is a difficult test, still multiple choice though. And then somebody will hire you and all of a sudden you're protecting uh, clients PHI or PII. So there's a, a very drastic difference in industries about what sort of accreditation or what sort of training is required uh, for someone to enter the career. Uh, and I think it's something worth in looking at and seeing how we can make some changes to cybersecurity.
0: I think it's it's difficult as well, isn't it? Because of the global nature of it and each country having their own sets of rules and regulations. And- yeah people influencing that we I was had a conversation this morning uh, we were doing a recording for a podcast for Crest here in the UK about cyber insurance and it's a, a a similar debate at the moment with that being an absolute mess and no one grabbing hold of it and and you wonder whether it's going to get to the point where people just won't get cover moving forward or you know they'll start to have capital adequacy requirements perhaps in place for those smaller firms who can't afford it. I mean, let's let's stick on the insurance market at the moment because I I think Lloyd's, as a syndicate, also reported a breach or potential breach last week. What are your thoughts on the insurance market as a whole for cybersecurity,
1: Christian? The insurance market is shifting in cybersecurity and Lloyd's of London was one of the first people to make this shift. Uh, They're basically saying if the attack on one of their clients' environment... Was from a quote nation state. Yeah. Then they're not going to pay out insurance because they would say this is an act of war, which we don't cover with cyber insurance. So the challenge now is if there is a data breach, how do you prove that it wasn't a nation state? Uh, yeah. And this 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 retribution is very difficult. And who whose responsibility is it to do that? Uh, so I've had a lot of discussions with people, and and uh, they're talking about starting like businesses where if a major company is breached, they'll help prove that it was a, was not a nation state so they can get the cyber insurance. Well, do you know, I, I had the but same conversation. The cyber conversation. Insurance trying to prove the opposite, right? Yeah, I, I had the
0: same conversation two weeks ago because I spent 20 years in the insurance industry. So I know how some of these ambulance chasing law firms operate around that. <laughs> and you can see a whole new subculture or or sub industry of firms out there just doing exactly that you'll have ones who work on behalf of the insurer who can definitely tell you it was a state sponsored attack. And then you'll have people like you say, work the other side saying, well, no, it's not. I mean, it could just get a bit complicated, couldn't it? Yeah. Um, Zachary Lewis. Thanks for jumping in. Um, do you think the U S will create its own national law similar to GDPR to help fight breaches? Hmm.
1: Well, California has already done, done something similar. Uh, I mean, California is a little bit different <laughs> than most of the U.S., though, on some of their policies. Uh, I don't know if we'll do something like something like GDPR. I'm not sure how much of a difference GDPR has actually made uh, versus how much of a headache it's caused in uh, <laughs> Europe. I know a lot of people, companies in the U.S., don't want to deal with Europeans because of GDPR uh, and the, the right to forget uh, and all the stuff that you have to do with GDPR is just a logistical nightmare almost. So yeah. again, it ties back to risk. Uh, and it, how much benefit does this GDPR framework actually have? And can we quantify that? How, you know, how much has it reduced the risk or the actual attacks in Europe? And I think we need to look at that before we implement something like that in the US. I'm not opposed to it, but I think we need the data. Because I, I travel a lot, for instance, and I I often wonder pretty much on a daily basis when I go through the airport and I'm getting harassed by TSA how many attacks have actually been stopped and I'd like to see the data by the transportation security agency and all these controls we put at the airport because we are spending mil- billions of dollars on that and I wonder if we've only stopped two attacks in in 30 years is it, or whatever 20 years is it worth all this money and all this headache and all this loss in e- efficiency So I think the data needs to be there so we can actually make informed decisions based on actual data versus just assuming that this is going to reduce the risk.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. I should have mentioned earlier as well, I just noticed that Christopher has bought a copy of your book. Um, So thanks, Christopher. And you have to let us know what you think of it. It's much appreciated. Um, Next question then. So Friday, I think it was, or maybe Thursday last week, LinkedIn and social media blew up off the back of a certain CISO from Uber or the previous CISO from Uber Mm -hmm. facing, I think, eight years in jail for, I believe, without having the right information in front of me, it was for obstructing rather than anything else. Um, There's been lots of polarized commentary on LinkedIn with regards to that. You've got people shouting scapegoat on this hand. Then you've got people on the other hand saying he was responsible, he should bear responsibility. Do you have any thoughts around that you'd like to share today or where this goes moving forward now that case has gone through?
1: My understanding, and I don't have all the details, is that the CISO of Uber uh, intentionally hid the fact that there was a data breach. Uh, I don't know if he hid that from his leadership as well, like the CEO, or just from the public. Uh, I do think as a C-level of an organization, a pu- especially a public organization, you have a great responsibility to the public. Yeah. Uh, the ultimate responsibility, though, is with the CEO as well. So I don't know exactly what communications transpire between the CEO and the CISO. You know, if the CEO was aware of this as well, the CEO should be held responsible. Though, in my I think. Opinion. I
0: think again, as as we've both said, without without knowing the full facts, I suppose, without seeing the full court transcript, transcript, it's impossible really to make a judgment on it. But I completely agree with you. And I, yeah. I fail to see how the C-suite wouldn't have been aware from what I've read so far, but I, but I could be wrong. But this goes back to, um, we, we always talk about on the CISO experience, the need for security leaders to be able to talk in the terms of the C-suite. So, I mean, good example is, Definitions of risk to a finance director and a CEO when they're Mm. talking about risk is going to be different to the, you know, kind of terminology you're using in the security industry. Is there Mm. a case, especially with what happened with Uber last week, where it's equally important that these leaders within these organizations have an understanding of security? Because in the day, the world that we live in today, everything's connected. So Mm. any big business will need security of some form. And it just seems that the onus is always put on the security professionals to help guide and understand, but surely there should be some part, some responsibility for those in the C-suite to have a knowledge and understanding of it as well.
1: Well, that is their role and their responsibility. And as a CISO, if you don't have a true understanding of the risk, the, the ownership is on you to make sure your team is communicating with you in a way that you can understand the information and to make sure that you as a CISO, are communicating with a board of directors so they understand the true risk as well. And I think this is a a problem across the board, uh, and I talk about this in the book, uh, is as cybersecurity professionals, we see the world through our lens, and we often wanna be the smartest person in the room because that's how we get our significance. We know more about cybersecurity than anybody else. So we often talk over somebody's head and then get frustrated that they don't understand what we're talking about, where we need to shift this and take ownership of our own communication so the message is actually received. Because you hear this constantly, like cybersecurity people will will complain that they didn't get the budget they needed. Well, maybe they didn't get the budget they needed because they didn't explain things in a manner that the board of directors understood it. Uh, and if the CISO doesn't understand the risk from his team or her team, the CISO needs to fix that communication gap with their team. And then the CISO also needs to understand how to relay that risk to the rest of the rest of the board, because you can't just speak cybersecurity to people that are on the board. They're trying to run the business. They think in different terms. Uh, And I think that's important that we close that communication gap. We've got a massive communication gap with cybersecurity right now.
0: Absolutely. Let's, let's dive back into the book, the first book and how, and the approaches that you take to help solve that from a leadership point of view. Can you dig into that for me a little bit? We've got a few minutes. We've got about Five or six minutes left. Can we just cover off some of the some of the subjects you go through in there for anyone who's interested?
1: Yeah, I'll run through them real quickly, just a quick overview. The first step I have in the book is awareness. Uh, I think we have to start with awareness. And one of the things I talk about is uh, we often in cybersecurity or just in life in general, we want to feel significant. So the way we feel significant is often being smarter than somebody or being different from somebody uh, and from an awareness perspective, it's important to understand that and also understand that we have these triggers in our brain uh, these, that automatically run a program. Uh, and we don't even realize it. We think we're very unpredictable, but we're really fairly predictable as humans. And if we have a trigger, we basically run a default program. And sometimes that program isn't, isn't uh, adding value to a scenario, or isn't serving us. So we need to be able to do a control C and stop that program and install a new program, which is basically a new habit. Uh, and and have that awareness to do that. The second step I talk about is mindset. Uh, A lot of people have a fixed mindset. They believe their traits aren't malleable or or their brain is hardwired. I don't believe that. I believe we we all have the ability to change our behavior. So that is a growth mindset. And in industries like cybersecurity, I constantly hear people say, I'm just not good with the people. That is an example of a fixed mindset. I hear that too. Yeah, like, what would it do if you got better with people? Because you probably have parents, you probably have children, you probably have a spouse. It's not just the people at work. And the third step is acknowledgement. With acknowledgement, uh, I think it's important that you acknowledge and appreciate someone in in the language that they understand. uh, So that I talk about the five languages of appreciation in the workplace. And I also talk about, like, with me, one of the things I realized is... I wasn't good at acknowledging myself. So if I'm not good at acknowledging myself, I realize I'm not gonna be good at acknowledging my team.
0: Absolutely. Uh, I remember
1: finishing like the 2015 Iron Man World Championship, and I was automatically focused on the next thing I wanted to accomplish. I never once said, hey, this is pretty cool. It took me 10 years to get here, and I did this. And then step four is communication. Uh, with communication, I'm a believer that the, the meaning of communication is the response you get. So, if you are communicating with someone and you're not getting the response you expect or desire, the ownership is on you to change that, alter how you (laughs) communicate. Yeah. It's 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 too easy to say. Oh, they just don't get it. You know, it's the definition of
0: insanity, understand. isn't it? The definition it's, of insanity doing the same thing but expecting different results.
1: <laughs> we do this all the time in cybersecurity. We keep saying our users are stupid. We can't educate them. Blah blah blah. Management doesn't understand where it's like, yeah. like we're the yeah. ones that need to take ownership and alter how yeah. we're communicating. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, it I, is like I, insanity. I
0: I really, I really liked what you said about taking the moment to appreciate where you are as well. Because I think, I mean, you and I have had this conversation before, I think. You you spend, you go to school, you're at primary school, you're looking forward to high school, you're then looking forward to college, you're looking forward to getting a car, you're then looking forward to your first job, you're then looking forward to getting promoted. It's always about what's next what's next what's next our whole lives we're brought up to think like that and working in financial planning for 25 years that's all we talk to people about you know you've got to save for your future you need to have this you need to have that and I was guilty of it for 45 years never being in the moment and never being aware and appreciative of what I've actually got and I know it's off on a tangent a little bit but what a life-changing experience it is when you start to actually take a step back and be appreciative and and pleased with what you've done
1: Yeah, exactly. Uh, I I think showing some appreciation is important. And something else uh, that's worth mentioning with cybersecurity, uh, I think a lot of leaders do not do this very well in cybersecurity, is, is the appreciation. We've got, you know, as a cyber defender, for instance, we have to do like a thousand things right. If we miss one thing, then that one thing we miss could be the hole that the cyber criminal can use to get into our environment. But what happens is the leaders of cybersecurity or the managers typically focus on the one thing we got wrong versus the 999 things we got right. Uh, And what we focus on, we typically get more of. I remember this. there was a study done and actually saw these signs on a cruise. I did a Caribbean cruise a few weeks ago. I saw these signs on the cruise, which affirmed my, my research on the study. There was a study done about like wet floors and they had two different signs they put up by the wet floor. One of the signs said caution, wet floor, don't slip. The other sign said caution, wet floor, walk carefully. So guess which sign (laughs) resulted in more people falling? Was
0: Was it the don't slip one by any chance?
1: It was because we're yeah. like, oh, we're focused on slipping. So it's the same thing in cybersecurity. We should it's, it's, no on... different
0: to, it's no different to your children, is it? You mustn't ever tell them, don't climb that tree, because as soon as you turn <laughs> around, they're up that tree.
1: It's a, Yeah, it's the same, because they're focused on the tree. It's the same yeah. concept. Yes, exactly. Yeah.
0: Um, okay, and, we've, we've got a couple of minutes left. Anything else you want to just inspire our audience with, Dr. Christian, before we wrap up today?
1: I think it's important in cybersecurity. I know a lot of people talk about getting a career in cybersecurity. I think it's important to understand like the actual career landscape in cybersecurity. There's a lot of different things that require a different personality type. A penetration tester is very different than an auditor, for instance, or a digital forensics person or someone that works in a SOC. So I think if you're looking to get in cybersecurity, you might want to go to like 16personalities.com and take a personality test and kind of figure out what your strengths and weaknesses are and try to play to your strengths. Because if you don't have a passion for constantly learning new technical things and banging your head against the wall and being very persistent, you're probably not going to be a very good pen tester. You might get very frustrated. If you like things to be very structured, uh, you, know, you might be good at auditing in cybersecurity. So it's important to actually find something that works for you versus you know pick a career that pays a lot that you are constantly frustrated in or especially in cybersecurity I should say
0: absolutely I noticed you mentioned 16 personalities I've never I've never done that assessment but I have just dropped the link in the chat for anyone who wants to give it a go after mm-hmm. um after I finish work today I'm going to try that and see what I come up with so for someone like me who just enjoys talking with people and helping people where do I fit in Christian? <laughs>
1: Well, you could take the 16personalities.com and give get an idea. Yeah, we'll,
0: we'll re- report back in on the next episode to let you know what it came out. And that
1: with. that no, you you make a good point, Simon. Like you don't have to be like super hands on keyboard technical to add value in cybersecurity. Like you said, you're, you know, you're you're, you're probably not equipped to like, uh, no offense, but like you know, do a write a, write an exploit in, in C or anything, no. you know. But you're adding value to the industry. So there's different ways we can add value and they're not all the same avenue of like, I have to be the penetration tester. And we've been kind of brainwashed to think we have to have these skills because there's these capture the flags. They, you know, we brag about how cool hackers are. They talk about the movie, you hit three keystrokes and you're into the bank or the <laughs> nuclear power plant. So it seems sexy, but it's just one aspect of cybersecurity. And it's actually not that sexy. You know, no. there's other things. And what I said, play to your strengths. You're playing to your strengths. Right now, and it's adding value to the industry. I think it's great.
0: I really appreciate those words. And for those who are interested in pen testing, I mean, for me, you're spot on. I mean, I loved the the malicious part of it. So I enjoyed playing with Carly. I enjoyed, you know, learning all those skills. But then when it came to having to report that back, report writing is something that I've never particularly enjoyed. So had I taken the time, as you said to look at all the different facets of the job and all the different roles in the industry, I probably never would have sat and failed my OSCP in the first place. But equally, I suppose, I wouldn't have ended up here either because it all, right. ha- all had to be part of the journey, didn't it? And I think we've both said it in this stream already, but learning from your failures is hugely important. And for someone who's achieved a lot and also destroyed a lot, you know, been bankrupt in my life and lost everything, I can honestly say now that I've learned more from that than I have from swimming for my country or creating a million pound business. Don't get me wrong. I've, I've learned lots from that, but the, the value I've learned from, I suppose, realizing in my life, what's important to me was invaluable.
1: Yeah. As Oprah says, turn your wounds into wisdom. I absolutely agree. that. Yeah. Love <laughs>
0: Oprah. I haven't seen her for ages. Look, Christian, it's been, it's been absolutely amazing. I'm going to have to wrap things up because I've got another, got another call actually in five minutes, but also we are back in an hour and seven minutes with another security leader greg vandergast for an episode of how to hire in Cybersecurity. The most interesting part on the post i saw greg did earlier today if you're watching greg apparently used to be an underwear model so i can guarantee all of our (laughs) viewers i'm going to be honing in on that for
1: about 10 minutes to find out if
0: (laughs) it's actually true but christian any last words before we go
1: uh best of luck to everyone if uh I, I have one spe- I have a one one thing I have a special my my course for 97 dollars this month oh, for have cyber you got a, awareness month for that. Uh, you I can drop it if you drop it in the
0: private chat. I can put it in the chat before we wrap things up. Okay. Otherwise, awesome. it'll disappear into the ether of YouTube. Yeah. No worries. So while, while Christian's doing that, a massive thank you to everyone who's tuned in. William Slater telling me it's Myers-Briggs, the assessment. Thanks for that, William. That makes sense now. Yeah. Christopher, Suleiman, um, Adrian. There's so many of you in there. Zachary, Tope, Ismua, David Meese, Victor. If I forgot anyone, massive apologies. But thank you so much for tuning in. Did you manage to drop that in there, Christian?
1: I just did, yes. Perfect. <laughs>
0: Got it. Right. Seamless link just drop that in the chat. So for anyone who's interested, just to tell you what the offer was again, Christian.
1: Yeah, it's uh, quite a bit off of my, about $900 off of my um, people skills course on the secure methodology, which I talk about in the book. It's for $97 for this uh, month only.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much, Christian. It's been an absolute pleasure, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in. And for those of you that you'll be about later, I'll see you then.
1: All right. Awesome. Thanks.